Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's readings will be from Luke 2, 25 through 32, and Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Now Luke 2, 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a serpent sword. In the sight of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoring the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The word of the Lord. We continue this morning in our series of Advent. About this, this Advent season, we're drawing our attention to the word of God spoken through Isaiah the prophet. A great promise fulfilled in Christ that tells us the meaning of Christmas and the invitation to which we all receive through the gospel. This week I was looking at, at songs, Christmas songs. I'm sure you've noticed as you've gone around town that the musical background of our daily existence has shifted. It shifts regularly at this time of year. Some people love Christmas songs. Other people grow tired of them. I've noticed, though, in the last few years that it seems that the selection of Christmas songs being played in various stores has uh, seemed to me have narrowed a little bit. So I found myself checking, what are the most popular songs these, these days, Christmas songs? Well, both on iTunes this week and the number one Billboard Holiday Top 100 were the same. And the top song this Christmas was uh, Mariah Carey's song, I Don't Want a Lot for Christmas, There's Just One Thing I Need, I Don't Care About the Presents Underneath the Christmas Tree, I Just Want You for My Own, More Than You Could Ever Know, Make My Wish Come True, All I Want for Christmas is You, Yeah. And I found myself thinking, something is missing, something Something is missing. I listened, I thought, maybe I'm missing it towards the end of the song. And I came to the end of the lyrics. Oh, I don't want a lot for Christmas. This is all I'm asking for. I just want to see my baby standing right outside my door. Oh, I 
just want you for my own more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. Baby, all I want for Christmas is you, baby. Christmas prompts uh, thoughts of love in our hearts, and yet the love that Christmas is about is something much, much grander than the love of a boyfriend, girlfriend, the love between a man and a woman. The love of God is on display in Christmas. And this longing for love to be found, we find in the actual Christmas story. And I want to draw your attention this morning to counsel that we receive from someone older, wiser than the Billboard Top 100. And that older, wiser counsel comes to us in this riveting scene in the gospel narrative, that riveting scene of Simeon. Many of us long for someone older and wiser in our lives to show us what's really important, and Simeon functions in that way in Luke chapter 2. Luke introduces the character of Simeon as a man who is righteous and devout, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is a crucial line in this text He was waiting for something specific. He was waiting for the resolution of a story that God had begun in Scripture and was fulfilling in his own time. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah, a promised Savior. This is the promised Savior from the prophet Isaiah. The prophets of the Old Testament Scriptures who pointed forward to the coming of God's great saving action in the world. And so our Advent series is about this promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There are many other prophetic words, and we've chosen to focus our attention on the ministry of Isaiah, specifically in the figure of the servant of the Lord, who looms large in the second half of Isaiah's prophetic writings. The servant of the Lord who comes in fulfillment of God's promise to bring light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah's prophetic announcement, his ministry lasted during the reigns of several kings in Israel. The last king, King Hezekiah, who made big news this week, if you saw Hezekiah was a major story this week, and let me show you why. Hezekiah was the big news on Wednesday for the, uh, this reason. Hezekiah, king of Judah, just on Wednesday was revealed in a bulla, which is a clay imprint from a signet seal. And the inside of this signet seal, in the Paleo-Hebrew or classical Hebrew letters, it says across the top that this signet seal belonged to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. And it's the first naming of a king of Judah, the king of under which Isaiah's ministry was carried out. And it's just one of 10,000 small pieces of evidence that the Bible's story is rooted in history. When we come to Christmas, we don't come for a sappy love story. We come to Christmas for reality. We come to Christmas for the saving actions of a God who said, I will do this, and he carries it out. These small artifacts such as these just provide further confirmation to us that the Bible is not a myth. The Bible is a true account of the world, of God's saving purposes. Little pieces of clay like this are important. This is the first named uh, Judite king to emerge uh, in an inscription within the context of a scientifically run excavation. 
and it was headline news on Wednesday. I'm sorry if any of you missed it. I must have dear friends because I had five different friends email me within hours. Isaiah's message in the days of Hezekiah was a message of comfort that the God who had brought judgment on his people for their disobedience and exile would return with a message of comfort and consolation. And this is the very specific consolation that Simeon is awaiting in Luke chapter 2. Isaiah 40 begins a great, the great second half of his prophetic writing with the announcement of comfort, consolation. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The comfort is a very specific comfort in Isaiah 40. Verse 2 goes on to say, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a full recompense for her sins. The biblical story of which this message of comfort and consolation enters in is the story of God who is the creator of all humanity, God who is the redeemer and savior, God who builds a nation by promise and faith, brings them out of the land of Egypt into the land of promise, and the people of God in the land of promise live in a way that is characterized by disobedience. And so just as God drove our ancestors out from the Garden of Eden, God drives his people out from the land of Israel. This is the biblical story. That exile happens as a result of God's judgment. But as we mentioned last week, the exile is not the end of the Bible story. And we worship a God who is bigger than our disobedience. There's no sin, no wrongdoing that you or I can ever do that's beyond the scope of God's redemption. God is a saving God. And the message of consolation was predicted early in Scripture, way back in Leviticus 26, other passages, the end of Deuteronomy that foresees this disobedience, foresees this time of exile, and yet promises that God will act again. And how will he act Specifically, Isaiah's vision is that he will act by sending this figure whom Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. We met the servant last Sunday in Isaiah 42. The servant is God's chosen one. The servant is the one in whom God's soul delights. The servant is filled with the Holy Spirit. He comes to carry out his office with humility, with compassion and tenderness. We discover in Isaiah 42 that all the world is waiting for him. And that God has sent him as a covenant for the people to open eyes that are blind, to release the prisoners from the, from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. And we saw last Sunday that the God of Scripture promises these things before they come to pass. And this is crucial for biblical faith. If there's one thing I want you to know about the God of the Bible, it's that he, not only does he just know the future, He is the one who brings the future into reality. And last Sunday we applied the truth, the bedrock foundation of this, that the God of Scripture makes promises that he accomplishes and he can be trusted. He can be trusted. So now today we turn our attention to the second servant song, the second passage where the servant of the Lord is brought before our eyes and that's in Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, the Lord again draws our attention to the figure of the servant of the Lord. 
This passage begins with a summons for a global audience. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. We discover that God's saving purpose cannot be confined to one geographical location. The ministry mission of the servant is addressed to the globe. This is, way, this is centuries before satellite communication. This is centuries before various platforms for instant communication. And yet the God of the Bible addresses all. Give attention, you peoples from afar. And now the servant speaks in Isaiah 49. The servant speaks and says that the Lord called me from the womb. The Bible's vision of life is life is in the womb. Persons are real in the womb. The servant speaks from the body of my mother. He named my name. The servant speaks more fully about his mission in verse 2. That the servant of the Lord would accomplish his mission through his speaking. The Lord made my mouth, he says, like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand he hid me. The image is of a sword made ready, polished and prepared. And it's as though the hand of Almighty God is resting on top of the sword, waiting for the moment. The servant said, he made me like a polished arrow, prepared to sail true. And yet at this moment in history, in the days of Hezekiah, the servant is as yet hidden in the quiver of Almighty God. The servant is prepared and waiting for just the right time. When the hand of the Lord God Almighty will unsheath him, as it were, from the sword. When the hand of Almighty God will reach into the quiver and pull him out as the time draws near. The servant speaks of his identity in verse 3. And the servant says, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. At this scene, we reach a decisive interpretive decision. The servant is speaking with the voice of an individual, and yet this individual seems to represent the whole nation. The Lord speaks to the servant, you, singular, are my servant. You, singular, this individual, will stand, as it were, for Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The servant speaks on behalf of the nation, on behalf of his own mission in verse 4 when he says that his mission will be difficult. It will even appear to have failed. The servant says, I've labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Strong language is used here. It's as though the instrument that God prepared to bring salvation to the nations itself has become broken. Israel languishes in exile. The servant's mission seems in jeopardy. This is one of the great themes for us to understand the coherence of the Bible's great narrative and story. Remember God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12. That God had called to Abraham and said, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God, who is a missionary God, has a saving purpose that he summons early in the Bible. He says that Abraham and his descendants will be the instrument through which salvation, through which blessing will be carried to the ends of the earth. And now Israel, the means of salvation itself, seems to be languishing in exile. 
that which is to bring salvation, blessing itself seems broken. It's as though a person is dying of sickness and a single vial of medicine to save a life. And as the medicine is being carried, the, the bearer of that medicine stumbles and falls and the medicine falls away. It's as though, like as a child, I remember maybe you did rope swinging across rivers. And at times you think, this is the rope. This will get us safely to the other side. Gathered with your friends, ready to swing across this river. And right as you get ready to take your turn, the rope breaks. Brothers and sisters, the Bible story of a God who brings salvation to the world, to the ends of the earth, through this chosen line, it seems to have come to a halt as Israel languishes in exile, labored in vain, my strength for nothing, for vanity. And yet the servant who now stands for the nation says, surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense is with my God. And God announces that his purposes cannot be thwarted by our disobedience. And we'll see why as the servant's mission unfolds. The servant resumes the narrative and says, the Lord says to me, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back that Israel might be gathered to him. The servant speaks, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. The servant's mission will not fail as the, even as the nation seems to have. And the servant announces in verse 6 this towering implication of his mission. He says that the Lord spoke to me. It is too light, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved ones of Israel. The servant's mission will be not only to restore Israel now to God's favor and blessing, but that he would become a light for the nations, that God's salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. The servant picks up the mission of Israel and carries it on his own shoulders. The tribes of Jacob, the nation is restored and light and blessing then radiate out from there to the ends of the earth. This is God's saving purpose. The mission of the servant announced 700 years before the scene in Luke 2. God's saving intention brothers and sisters, was to send a savior into the world, was to pick up the disobedience of the nation and as we'll see, carry it on his own shoulders that his purposes might be accomplished. The hope of Israel is that both Israel would be restored and the mission of God to the ends of the earth would be accomplished. And we return to the scene now in the temple courts when Simeon sees Joseph and Mary and the infant Jesus coming into the temple. He speaks to the Lord. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is the salvation that God has prepared. Just like that sharpened sword. Just like the polished arrow. Salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples. And Simeon bursts into praise. And says that this child will be a light for revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Brothers and sisters, the servant of the Lord accomplishes the saving mission of God. 
The story of Christmas is rooted in history. It's rooted in a promise. That promise is fulfilled uniquely, triumphantly in the birth of Christ. How does this lead us to action this morning? Let me suggest three ways. First, if it's true that Christmas means that the light for revelation to the nations has come, that means that we need to enlarge our view of Christmas. We have to enlarge our view of Christmas and recognize that Christmas fulfills the story of a missionary God. And that means that you and I are called to be involved in that mission. I will make you a light unto the nations. Isaiah spoke of this in chapter 2 when he said, In the latter days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains, and many peoples will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. The prophetic vision of the Bible is that the nations stream in to know the true and living God. Isaiah 11 There will come a shoot from Jesse, the line of David. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal, as a banner for the peoples. And of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place will be glorious. Christmas fulfills the mission of God to bring a light to the nations. And if this is true, that means that everyone who knows Christ, who believes in the true story of Christmas, should be compelled to join God's mission for the world. How can we do this today? We can do this here at Kenwood in a very easy way this week. I would call this entry-level missions. Entry-level missions is about 50 feet away. You walk to the back of the narthex and you buy tickets for a Christmas concert. This is entry-level missions. And you buy the ticket and you invite a friend, a colleague. You invite someone that may be trapped inside that Billboard Holiday Top 100 list where the true story of Christmas is not being announced. And you say, you know, we're having a concert. Would you like to come with me? All of us can do that. You don't need extensive cross-cultural training. You may need to stretch and make it safely to the narthex. You may have to do a small transaction, but tickets are $10, so the math is really easy. Entry-level missions. Invite a friend, coworker to the concert Friday, Saturday night. Pray that God's house would be filled and that people would hear the glorious good news of Christmas this weekend here. Other ways you can be involved in missions, you can get involved with local community outreach through the church, through tutoring in Deer Park. You can host a book club in January. We will be more about that to come. There's a whole group from our church this morning on their way back from Operation Christmas Child's Packing Center and we, brought, we sent hundreds of boxes, added to thousands of boxes from other communities around the country. And those boxes are being sent out in mission, another easy way to be involved. We had 25 people come last week for an information meeting for a mission trip to Mexico, planning for next year. There's all kinds of ways to be involved in God's mission. And Christmas, if you understand it, compels your involvement in God's mission. Christopher Wright wrote that missionary commitment is not an optional extra for the extra enthusiastic. 
Missions was not invented by Jesus to give his disciples something to do with the rest of their lives. Still less was missions a modern movement of the church that coincided with colonial expansionism. No, mission lies at the very heart of God's historical action in the Bible. God's mission to his fallen, suffering, sinful human creation, and indeed ultimately to his entire creation. There is one servant people, one servant king, and one servant mission. Christmas is about God's missionary purpose moved forward. Well, number two, how does this lead us to action this morning? It means that we must tell and announce the biblical story faithfully. The story of Christmas cannot be domesticated. It cannot be nationalized. It cannot be culture-bound. The story of Christmas, to be told well, has to be told in fulfillment of God's promise in Scripture. That's why we need the whole of the Scriptures. Isaiah 46, the Lord says, I put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Jesus says in John 4, verse 22, that salvation is from the Jews. Paul never stopped seeking to reach his own people. Romans 1, 16, he says, salvation is for everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek. The story of Christmas is the true story of God's saving mission in the world and it's a story that flows from all of Scripture. It's a story that we get grafted into through faith in Jesus Christ. It means that evangelism is for everyone. It means that evangelism must be to all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike. Again, Christopher Wright says, to the Jew first is not a matter of missionary strategy. It's a theological conviction. Jesus is the Savior of the world because he is the Messiah of Israel. Jesus is the Savior of the world because he is the Messiah of Israel. Some people today, some scholars, some in popular media argue that evangelism to Jews is inappropriate and culturally offensive. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is untrue. The gospel is good news for Israel and good news for the nations. If evangelism to Jews is disallowed, it cuts off the nerve of all other evangelism. The gospel has to be good news for Israel if it is to be good news for anyone else. If it is good news, then to fail to share it is the worst form of anti-Semitism. To to fail to share the gospel with one ethnic group, with one people of religious conviction, actually is the worst form of racism and hatred. To keep the gospel to yourself I mean, I'm challenged by this, and I want you to be. To keep the gospel to yourself and not share it with your neighbor or your friend or to say, this group does not need this, actually, according to the Bible, is a way of hating that person. Too often we're afraid to share the gospel because we fear that someone might hate us. And yet, if we don't share the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, it's a manifestation of our hatred of others. Nothing less. 
Christmas is about God's missionary purpose accomplished. We need to get involved in God's mission. Christmas is about a promise fulfilled, good news announced, announced in personal evangelism for all. Well, we come then at last to back to the song with which we started. Oh, I don't want a lot for Christmas. This is all I'm asking for. I just want to see my baby standing outside my door. I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. Baby, all I want for Christmas is you, baby. This diffuse, slightly misdirected song is pointing like half in the right direction. It's just got the wrong baby. You see, the joy of Christmas isn't that the love of my life is standing outside the door. The true story of Christmas is that a God who loves you more than you've dared imagine is knocking at the door, has left his throne in glory, come to seek and save each one of us. This is the love of Christmas. We find it in a baby. It's a baby born in Bethlehem, though. And a child who calls each of us to believe. A child fulfilling God's promise, spoken through the prophets. A child who would grow into adulthood, who would himself describe his mission in the language of the servant of the Lord promised in Isaiah A child who would grow into maturity and at the end of his public ministry met with his disciples in an upper room and spoke to them. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A child who would grow and speak to his disciples in that upper room that this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Isaiah's promise is fulfilled in Christ. The baby that we long to love has come. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, we give you our praise this morning and we worship you, child of promise, servant of the Lord, light to the nations, glory for Israel. We worship you. Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts now to partake together of your broken body and shed blood. Lord, I pray that you would open this table for all who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.